0: Well, this evening, we do have the privilege of continuing through our Route 66 series as we come to the book of 1 Samuel. And so with that in mind, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's word to 1 Samuel. We'll be flipping a lot of pages tonight. So I hope you are excited as I am. Times of transition can be significant and also advantageous, Eras for corporations, for institutions, even as large as nations. And it was in the late eighteenth century that the young independent confederation of the United States of the America to borrow the language of the Declaration of Independence were at a pivotal point in its history. After the British surrender at the Battle of Yorktown in seventeen eighty one and the signing of the Treaty of Paris in seventeen eighty three these young confederation of states faced a critical and momentous situation in the American experiment. As they broke away, as America separated from the monarchy in England, how would they respond? In what way or form of leadership would they institute? When the Articles of Confederation were dissolved and the Constitution of the United States of America was ratified in the year 1787 the Electoral College unanimously elected George Washington to be the first president of the United States of America. Now, Washington did not take up the office of the presidency with full eagerness, actually writing in a letter to a friend, Henry Knox, that he approached the office of presidency as a culprit faced his execution. And yet Washington inevitably did accept the results of the election becoming the first president of the United States of America in the year 1789. And the rest is history as they say. And all that to say that there is a reason that George Washington is heralded and elevated to the stature that he is in American history. There is a reason why there are history classes and lectures and books that are solely dedicated to this era in the American experiment, the revolutionary era. And the reason is because times of transition and major changes in the life of a people are pivotal and essential in the forming of that people. The same was true at the beginning of the American experiment and the same is true with the sons of Israel. In First Samuel, we come to a time of significant transition for the people of Israel as they transition from a collaboration of Loosely connected tribes governed by various geographical judges to a central, united monarchy reigning over the entire nation. But as one commentator pointed out, when we come to the example in 1 Samuel, it's not just sociological, it's not just political, maybe as we might think of the American experiment, but rather in 1 Samuel the birth of the monarchy that we see is not only merely political and sociological, but it's theological and spiritual and eschatological. And you can see the quote there from a commentator. He said it's spiritual because it concerns the faith of those who love the Lord and are committed to him as his disciples. It's theological because it concerns the rule of God amongst his people. And it's eschatological because it points in its very form To the coming of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time to be the messianic and mediatorial King who must reign until all enemies are put underneath his feet. Now, the overall theme of 1 Samuel is what we just described. It is a significant time of transition of the people of Israel from that of the time and era of the judges to the united monarchy that is established. And now while the narrator and author of the books of Samuel is not given, it is anonymous. And originally the books that we have in our English Bibles, First and Second Samuel were one volume. It is essential that we understand that what we read in 1 and 2 Samuel is an absolute masterpiece. I mean, as you read through the narratives, you develop this, that this is not just a mere recounting of history. No, this is the inspired word of God, and the theology just exudes from the pages as you read the book. As one commentator noted, literature, history, and theology combine in the book of Samuel to make it so great. And as we come to the book of Samuel, we're introduced to a unique cast of characters, In fact, one commentator noted that there is no book, no portion of narrative in the entirety of the Old Testament that is filled with a richer cast of characters. And so with that quote in mind, I want us to organize and arrange our study this evening based upon the three primary characters that we meet in 1 Samuel. I want us to focus on these three primary characters so that we would have a greater understanding and a framework for the book of 1 Samuel. Now, just a brief disclaimer before we begin our time. Tonight's not gonna be just merely three character studies that analyzes these three characters that we will meet, but rather yet, it will be utilized to serve as an outline as we examine all of the contents of the book. So let's begin our time this evening with our first primary character. And the first primary character is actually the namesake of the book, and that is Samuel, the final judge. And as we study this first character of Samuel. I want to consider it under two characteristics of Samuel that we are presented with in the first chapters of this wonderful book. The first characteristic that I want us to examine is the unique origin of Samuel, the unique origin of Samuel. As you would expect, Samuel didn't just appear on the scene, He didn't just come out of nowhere, but he had parents. And in the first chapter, we're introduced to his parents, namely Hannah and Elkanah. And the narrator provides an interesting detail in that first chapter that I want us to examine. So look at your Bibles in verses 5 and 6, and I want you to notice what the narrator gives us. Twice in verses 5 through 6, we read these words, that Yahweh had closed her womb. And this inability to bear children in Hannah's life causes her, it presses her, into heartfelt prayer and supplication before the Lord. You, look, you can look down at verses 10 through 11 where we see that she was greatly distressed and she prayed to Yahweh and wept bitterly. And she made a vow and said, oh, Yahweh of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to Yahweh all the days of his life. And a bystander looking upon this woman, pouring out her heart before the Lord, Eli the priest concludes that she's drunk. And yet in verse 16, we see that it was merely Hannah pouring out her heart and soul before the Lord. And I want us to pause for a moment and just reflect upon our own lives. I mean, do we pray this way? I mean, do we approach the throne of God in a stoic manner? with no heartfelt passion of understanding that we have the opportunity and access to approach the throne of grace. You know, Thomas Watson is one of my favorite Puritans. And he said that Christ was more willing to go to the cross than we are to the throne of grace. And yet here in the model of Hannah, we have the wonderful example of what it looks like to sincerely approach the Lord in prayer, pouring out your heart to the Lord trusting in his wisdom, his goodness, his sovereignty. And so after this trip to the temple, after this heartfelt prayer, Hannah and her husband Elkanah, they travel back to the hometown of Ramah and look at verse 19 with me. I love this. It said that Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and Yahweh remembered her. He remembered And this isn't the first time in the scriptures that we see this phraseology that Yahweh remembers his people. Think about Genesis chapter 8 after the flood. It says in verse 1 that God remembered Noah. Or Genesis 21 verse 1. It says that God took notice of Sarah and fulfilled upon his promise. Or Genesis 30, 20, the example of the matriarch, Rachel, says that God remembered her and opened up her womb. I mentioned this last time, but consider the sons of Israel in heavy affliction and bondage in Egypt. It says in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh remembered her. Now, I would be remiss at this point not to mention to you a recurring theme that is so prevalent in the scriptures. You'll notice that in the lineage of prominent biblical figures, specifically in the messianic line, that there's this recurring theme of barrenness amongst the women. Have you ever noticed that? And yet in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, it was God who promised that it was by the seed of the woman that the warrior king would come. And God using women who were barren and upon human standards had no possibility to have an heir to bear children, he demonstrates his sovereignty and his omnipotence. I mean, have we forgotten the words of the pre-incarnate Christ to Sarah in Genesis chapter 18? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Or have we forgotten the words of the incarnate son of God in Matthew 19, 26, all things with God are possible. The barren 90-year-old Sarah bears Isaac, the promised child. Rebecca was barren, Isaac prays for her and the Lord opens her womb. We already mentioned the example of Rachel in Genesis 30, but we met a character last time in Ruth. In the fourth chapter of Ruth in verse 13, it says that Yahweh enabled her to conceive. And obviously the greatest example Of the Lord Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, just as it was prophesied 700 years prior by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 714. And all of this reminds us of God's absolute sovereignty and meticulous providence in the outworking of his redemptive plan. As Dale Ralph Davis remarks, Barren women seem to be God's instruments in raising up key figures in the history of redemption from the promised seed Isaac to the father of Israel Jacob to saviors and preservers of Israel, Joseph, Samson, Samuel to the forerunner of the great King John the Baptist and to the example of the Messianic King, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so chapter one closes with the acknowledgement that Samuel is born with the eventual dedication of Samuel by Hannah. And I love what Schreiner says when he remarks at this point. Listen to this. He says, The seemingly small events in history must be read against the canvas of the Lord's rule and reign over all of history. This seemingly small event of the Lord answering a faithful woman's prayer is to be read against the backdrop in the canvas of the Lord's reign and rule over all of history, including in the individual lives of his people. And if it's in chapter one that details Hannah's prayer, then chapter two details her praise. In fact, since the book 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel should be viewed as a unified volume, this serves as the introductory inclusio, if you will, to what we find at the end of the second book of Samuel in chapter 23 of David's prayer. And look at me in the beginning verses of chapter two. We see this praise being poured out by Hannah, exalting God, ascribing glory to God. He is the unique God, the holy God. There is no one like him, nor is there any rock like our God. And look with me at those middle section in verses four through eight. And notice the strong contrast that is presented between the low and the humble and the proud and the arrogant. The bows of the mighty are sh- shattered. The feeble gird on strength. Yahweh makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. We see this play out in the first chapter of 1 Samuel which is merely just a foreshadow of what we see play out in the rest of the pages of the book. As the proud and arrogant Saul is brought low, and the humble and obedient David is exalted. And notice with me in verse 10 of this prayer. Hannah prays, he will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed There's no king in Israel yet at this time. And yet in this prayer, Hannah anticipates the establishment of the monarchy in which both Saul and David would be anointed in the office of the king. And the themes that we see in this prayer are woven throughout the tapestry of the book of Samuel, providing the theological bearings and outworkings that we see so prevalent throughout its pages. More to be said on this verse later. So it's from these two chapters, it's from these two texts that we see that Samuel had a unique origin. He was born to a faithful, barren woman whom Yahweh sovereignly opened up her womb. But a second characteristic that I want us to consider and highlight is the unique offices of Samuel. The unique offices of Samuel. Look at me if you would with the first verse of chapter three where we read that word from Yahweh was rare in those days. And remember, the nation of Israel was still lying in their dilapidated state without a righteous human king, with everyone still doing what was right in their own eyes. I mean, we can see an example of this at the end of chapter two, where even in the priesthood, Eli and his wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are doing absolutely atrocious heinous, grievous sins. Everyone's still doing right in their own eyes. And yet it was at this unique time that God raises up a unique individual in Samuel. And in the third chapter of 1 Samuel, we see the Lord call to Samuel thrice, Samuel. Finally, Samuel responds and the Lord gives revelation to him, which he relays to Eli. But I want you to look at me with the final verses of chapter three the final verses of chapter three. It says that Samuel grew and Yahweh was with him and let none of his words fail. Thus Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of Yahweh throughout all of the land because Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of Yahweh. Truly Samuel occupied a unique office as prophet of God during this unique time. And it's in the next chapters in chapters four through six that the narrator provides us an interlude, a break in the narrative of Samuel and provides us a narrative of the Ark of the Covenant. In chapter four, the Philistines rout the Israelites. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, are slaughtered. The Ark is taken, Eli falls over backwards, ultimately leading to the premature birth of Phinehas' son, appropriately named Ichabod because the glory that was represented by the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God was now in enemy hands. And it's in chapter five that we see the omnipotence of God on full display against the pagan false gods of the Philistines. God demonstrates his power and his sovereignty by afflicting Dagon, the pagan God of the Philistines, along with the people And that leads them wanting to give the ark back to the Israelites, get it away from us in the following chapters. And it's in these chapters, these chapters from four to six, that we see the words of Hannah and her prayer provide much insight. Do you remember the praise that she offered to the Lord in the beginning half of her prayer? God is the unique God. There is no one like him. He is the Holy One, the Majestic One, the One and Only. Dagon and the people of Philistia couldn't stand before the presence of the Almighty God of heaven and earth. And not even God's people were safe. At the end of chapter six, we see some of the Israelites look presumptuously and arrogantly into the contents of the Ark of the Covenant where it says that the Lord struck down 50,000 people. He is the Holy One. He is the creator. We are the creation. He is high and lifted up. You know, it's at this point that I'm reminded of the words of C.S. Lewis says, he describes Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. Is he safe? No, he's not safe. But he's good. and He's the king. And now that the ark is back in the territory of the Israelites, the narrative switches back and focuses on Samuel, this time focusing upon the office of Samuel as judge. Remember, he is the final judge in the history of Israel before the monarchy is established. And in chapter seven, we read words that are very similar to the language that we saw in the judges cycle as Samuel calls to the people to return to Yahweh with all of your heart. Lay aside your false worship, your idolatrous worship and return and serve the Lord in truth. It's on that day that The Lord thundered with a great thunder, as verse 10 says, echoing the words of Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2. And notice how the narrator describes Samuel's ministry at the end of chapter 7. Again, we see him occupying this office as judge, as the narrator says, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He judged Israel in all these places. Verse 17, he judged Israel Samuel was the last of the judges that we meet. And yet a new day is dawning in which the monarchy would be established and initiated. Now it must be mentioned here as we're working throughout these characters that there is overlap between the characters that we are going to study. There's not this clean, clear break, but it is at this juncture in the narrative of 1 Samuel that we transition from judgeship to kingship, the birth of the monarchy, the theocratic kingship is coming. And that brings us to a second primary character that I wanna draw your attention to. And that second primary character in 1 Samuel is Saul, the first king. Now, Samuel is still present in the narrative all the way up into the 25th chapter where his death is described. But here, the preeminent focus is upon the character of Saul. And as we examine this section of 1 Samuel, as we examine this character of Saul, I wanna do so under four stages of Saul's kingship to help us navigate this section. The first stage of Saul's kingship that I want us to examine is really a prerequisite to that kingship and that is the request for a king. Now it's in this request that we come to in chapter eight that we're introduced to, we're presented with an interesting interpretive challenge and dilemma. You see, it's here in this chapter that the people request a king and look at verse five of chapter eight. The people, as Samuel says, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But look at the response of the Lord in verses seven through eight. Yahweh says to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people, but let your eyes glance down to the next sentence. He says, but, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Verse eight, they have forsaken me and served other gods. So what are we to do with this? Are we to conclude that to have a king is bad? That it's against God's will? You remember in the scriptures that God has already laid the groundwork for a coming future king. Old Testament commentator Merrill notes, the concept of human royalty was part of the plan of God as early as the patriarchs. Remember Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, 6, it says that kings will come from you or to Jacob's blessing of his son, specifically Judah in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart. Or consider the prophet Balaam's promise that there would be one who exercises dominion that rises up within the ranks. Or Deuteronomy 17, where Moses provides the regulations and the procedural requirements for a king. And as we looked in the book of Judges to the atrocity and the moral anarchy that was taking place, corresponding to the reality that there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. So the idea of kingship is there. And yet we see that the Lord says, they have rejected me from being king. So what's the issue here? Well, as one commentator notes, and I love this. He says, how can Israel have a human king while Yahweh remains the great king? In other words, what kind of human king is suitable within a theocracy? God is willing, even desires to give Israel a king of the right sort and catch this last line. But this king must be a vassal king or a vice regent submissive to the initiatives and directives of the great king. That's the issue. This king was to be a vice regent, a vassal king of the great king, the king of heaven and earth and was to rule in submission to him under his authority, under his directives. So it's not the fact of having a king that is condemned here in 1 Kings chapter eight, but rather it is the motives of Israel in seeking a king. Look at verse five with me. Notice the words of the people. It says, appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Or verse 20 of that same chapter Notice the purpose that they requested a king that we may be like all the nations. The reason that Israel requested a king to rule over them was so that they would be like the surrounding nations around them. One who would rule over them, who would lead them out into battle and fight their battles. And so rather than being the kingdom of priests and holy nation that God had called them to be, the people of Israel instead succumb to the temptation to be like the surrounding pagan nations. And I want us to consider the tendency in our own lives where this is reflected. We're called to be the salt of the earth, called to be the light of the world. We're called to be a holy people unto the Lord, for he is holy. And yet how often of the time Do we become so entranced with the things around us, with the things of the world? How often, at the times, do we seek to assimilate our lives and our convictions to the peoples and the worlds around us rather than from the divinely authoritative and sufficient scriptures? You see, the desire to be like the unbelievers around them was not just a problem for the Israelites but is it a sin that clings ever to every single one of our fickle hearts? And chapter eight gives way to chapter nine, where I want us to consider a second stage of Saul's kingship, and that is the rise of Saul as king. And it's in chapter nine that we come to meet this character of Saul. The narrator describes him in verse two as a choice and handsome man taller than all the people. And notice that focus on the physical stature and appearance of Saul as that looms large in his being chosen as king. And in chapter nine, we travel with Saul as he journeys on on his pursuit of some lost donkeys to where he providentially is led into an encounter with Samuel, the prophet. And look with me to the beginning of chapter 10 the beginning of chapter 10, we read these words. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him and said, has not Yahweh anointed you to be a ruler of his inheritance? Later in chapter 10, we see the people's affirmation of Saul's kingship with their affirmation and their response, long live the king in chapter 24, verse 24 of chapter 10 rather. And so the monarchy is officially established in Israel. And that brings us to a third stage that I want us to consider of Saul's kingship. And that third stage is the reign of Saul as king. The reign of Saul as king. Chapter 11 begins with Saul being victorious over the Ammonites in a victorious military campaign. And he starts off well. I mean, look at the end of chapter 11. These are the words of Saul. He says that, that Yahweh has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Not me, not I, but the Lord has brought this deliverance about. We turn the page to chapter 12 where Samuel gives a recap of the history of Israel up until this point, reflecting on the fact that God delivered them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, that he entered into covenant with them, that he led them into the promised land where they gave themselves over to a false and idolatrous worship ultimately leading to judges being raised up by God to call the people back to repentance and to true worship and to deliver them from their enemies but look at look at the end of chapter 12 with me because in similar fashion just as those who went before Samuel as Moses as Joshua Samuel provides these Two ways, these two paths, if you will, for the people. Fear the Lord and serve him or continue your practice of abominable acts. Verse 24 says, only fear Yahweh and serve him in truth with all your heart. Why? For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. And notice that phrase in the middle of verse 24, for consider what great things he has done for you. That is to always be the fuel that prompts proper obedience and worship of the true and living God. Think about when God entered into covenant with the people at Sinai, chapter 20 of Exodus. He says, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand. I was the one who redeemed you. And then right on the heels of that, we have the 10 commandments. You shall serve me alone. You shall have no other gods before me. Consider the example of Romans and how that's structured, the book of Ephesians and how that's structured. You see a proper knowledge and understanding of who God is and what great redemptive acts he has accomplished is to always be the fuel. It is to always be the stimulus of our worship and our obedience to God. For consider what great things he has done. You see a proper consideration and reflection of who God is. in that you, if you are a believer, have entered into covenant relationship with God and you stand as a justified sinner before the throne of God. that can prompt your worship. That can stimulate your obedience. And it's at this point in the narrative of 1 Samuel that the demise of the career of Saul begins. You see, rather than trusting and submitting to the word of the Lord through his prophet Samuel, Saul presumptuously takes upon himself the priestly office in chapter 13, offering sacrifices when Samuel was delayed. Look at, we'll look at chapter 13 with me. In verse 13, it is after this, Samuel the prophet came and he rebukes Saul. He says, you have acted foolishly. You have not con- kept the commandment of Yahweh your God, which he commanded you. For now, Yahweh would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart and Yahweh has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what Yahweh commanded you. Saul had forsaken and disobeyed the clear directive and commandment of God. And so God says, I am going to remove the kingdom from you and I am going to give it to a man who is after my own heart and I will establish him as king over my inheritance. Well, I want us to consider a fourth stage of Saul's kingship. In this fourth stage of Saul's kingship, I've labeled the rejection of Saul as king. The rejection of Saul as king. Chapter 15 begins with a clear directive from God to utterly destroy the Amalekites and all their possessions. You can see that there in verse three. But yet we let our eyes glance down to verse nine and we read these words. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. And this is blatant disobedience of King Saul against the command of Yahweh. And what we see unfold in chapter 15 is really an astonishing account. Samuel comes to Saul and notice what Saul says in verse 13. Saul says, "I have carried out the command of Yahweh." Now Samuel was getting old in his years, but he wasn't deaf yet, and he responds to the lowing of the oxen and the bleeding of the sheep. But notice verse 15. And notice what Saul does and what we all often tend to do. Justify our disobedience and sin. Verse 15 of chapter 15. They, so he blames it on the people. They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to Yahweh your God. But the rest we utterly destroyed. No, Samuel, look. We kept the best of the spoils because we're going to sacrifice them to the Lord. Yes, I know what God said. I know He said, utterly destroy them, do not allow a thing to be living. But God will be pleased with our worship. And notice the rebuke of the prophet in verse 22. Samuel says, has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. You see, the Lord is pleased with heartfelt obedience, not with just ritualistic observance. Look at verse 23 with me. because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has rejected you from being king. And the glory of Israel strips the kingdom from Saul and he's gonna give it to a man after his own heart, a man whom we will meet in the next chapter. And that brings us to the third primary character of 1 Samuel that I want to introduce you to this evening. And that third primary character is David the faithful king. And now as we analyze these final chapters of 1 Samuel, I wanna analyze them under four headings, four headings to help us grasp and grapple with the contents. This first heading that I want us to look at is the anointing of David. It's at this point that Yahweh directs Samuel to travel to Bethlehem, to the sons of Jesse. And we met this family before in the storyline of scripture. We met them at the end of the book of Ruth. And all Jesse's sons are brought before Samuel and Samuel thinks that it's gonna be a lie of the eldest of the sons because of his superior physical stature. But notice verse seven. God has said he is going to appoint a man after his own heart because it is God who looks upon the heart, not just merely upon the outward manifestations and appearance. Finally, it's after the inspection of all the sons of Jesse that the shepherd boys brought in from his duty where Yahweh makes his choice evident. This is the one who is going to be king over my people. This is the one who is going to be ruler over my inheritance. And it's at this point that the spirit of God comes upon David and subsequently the spirit departs from Saul with an evil spirit tormenting him the rest of his days. A second heading that I want us to consider is in the next chapter, and that is the attestation of David. (laughs) The attestation of David. I mean, I have to alliterate, right? I don't have to, but. You see, come to chapter 17, and we have one of the most misunderstood narratives in all of scripture, the narrative of David and Goliath. And it's at this point that I want to consider what the story of David and Goliath is actually about. Because it is at the point of the story of David and Goliath that we are introduced to a portrait of what does it look like to be a man after God's own heart. Contrary to the popular opinion of Max Licato and men like Stephen Furtick, the story of David and Goliath is not about defeating giants in your life, whether that be anxiety or fear or even a sin problem. You see, the account of David and Goliath is centrally about answering the question, what does it look like to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? And the narrative of 1 Samuel, Samuel responds resoundingly, it is a man who is consumed with and motivated by the glory and exaltation of the God of heaven and earth. That is a man or a woman after God's own heart. You're familiar with this account, so we're not gonna look at it in great detail, but you know that Goliath was the reigning champion of the Philistines' army, and he taunted the armies of the living God, and David approaches the battle lines where he hears these taunts, and I want you to notice David's response in verse 26 of chapter 17. David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? David knows that God is jealous for the glory of his name. So David knows and trusts that Goliath will be overthrown. Because God doesn't just sit there and lay silent when his name is provoked. He is zealous. He is jealous for the glory of his name. And look at verses 45 through 47 with me. David says to Goliath, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts. And it's this day that Yahweh will deliver you into my hands. And look down at the end of verse 46. So that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that Yahweh does not deliver by sword or by spear for the battle is Yahweh's and he will will give you into our hands. This is the portrait of a man after God's own heart. This is the portrait and the portrayal of a man who trusts in the sovereignty of God. This is one who is zealous for and consumed with the glory and exaltation of the living God? Is that your chief motivation in life, Christian? When you wake up in the morning, is that what gets you out of bed? don't have time, but there's a great article. John Piper wrote, drinking orange juice to the glory of God. I would encourage it to your reading list. It's a three-minute article. First Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Our entire ambition and pursuit of life is to be pleasing to him. Is that yours? In this account in 1 Samuel chapter 17 serves as an attestation of David's character as a man after God's own heart. David was the one whom God had chosen, the faithful king who trusted in the word of the Lord as opposed to the first King Saul. I love how Mark Dever summarizes the character of David here when he writes, David is overwhelmed with a concern for God's honor and prerogatives. God's activities and purposes, God's name and glory. Well, briefly, I want us to consider a third section under the heading, which I've labeled the acclaim of David, the acclaim of David. Look at chapter 18, verse seven with me. You know, naturally, if you slay a giant that the word is going to spread and spread it did through the ranks of the army all the way up into the chambers of the king. And here we see in verse seven, the women, the people of Israel sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. David was garnering the approval of the people of Israel as a hero, as a celebrity of sorts. But this celebrity status stopped there as King Saul became furious and jealous of the acclaim of the honor that was being given to David and not unto him. And that brings us to a fourth heading, a fourth heading that I want us to consider that summarizes the rest of the book and that is the affliction of David. This entire last section ranging from chapter 18 through 31 focuses on the demise and the downfall of Saul as king. And it subsequently highlights the rise and the increasing popularity of David. And I love what Schreiner here says. Schreiner says that the remainder of the narrative of 1 Samuel reflects the conflict that exists between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, showing and demonstrating the triumph of the offspring of the woman even through persecution. Or to quote the words of Hannah from the first page, or first. Uh, Second chapter of our book says, he brings low, he also exalts. And that's the story of this final section in 1 Samuel. And notice how the narrator describes how David was able to persevere under this affliction and this persecution wrought by the rabid King Saul. Look at verse 14 of chapter 18 with me. We read there that David was prospering in all of his ways and catch this. for Yahweh was with him. And that should cause our minds to catalog back in antecedent revelation to the pages of Genesis and the Joseph narrative of Genesis 37 through 50. Because frequently and multiple times throughout that narrative, Moses writes that Yahweh was with Joseph. Yahweh was with him. He was with him. That is why through God's providence, he was raised up in the council of Pharaoh for such a time like this, in the same way that God's sovereign will and mysterious providence led Joseph into the house of Egypt, so too, as David fled from the violent persecution of rabid King Saul, Yahweh being with David allowed him to prosper in all of his ways. He protected his anointed. Chapter 18, 29 says that David was Saul's enemy continually. However, not everyone in the house of Saul was an enemy of David. We read in chapters 19 through 20 of a friendship that is cultivated between Jonathan and David, ultimately leading to Jonathan promising to protect the life of David. And then we go on this journey with David as he runs From King Saul and his violent persecution, he comes in chapter 21 to the priest of Nob where he is refreshed on the consecrated bread. In chapter 22, Saul is in hot pursuit of King David where he slays 85 priests for aiding in David's flight. Chapter 23, the pursuit of David continues by Saul so much so that the narrator records in verse 14 that Saul sought him every day. But God did not deliver him into his hand. Chapters 24 and 26, we read of two remarkable instances where Saul is brought within the handbreadth of David, where David has the opportunity to slay the King Saul, to take his right as king, and yet he doesn't. Rather than take revenge into his own hands, and rather than stretching out his hand against King Saul, the Lord's anointed, David preserves his life demonstrating that his righteousness was greater than Saul. And right in the middle of these two chapters, right in the middle of chapters 24 through 26, we read of an interesting account with Abigail and David. Abigail was Nabal's wife and David and his company out in the wilderness had protected the flocks of Nabal and he then would not respond by compensating them. And Abigail intercepts David and intercedes on behalf of her wicked husband saying, David, don't take revenge into your own hands. It's in the end, end of chapter 25, that the Lord strikes down Nabal dead, showing that vengeance is the Lord's. And it's in the concluding chapters of 1 Samuel that the demise of Saul continues so much so that he consults a medium because Yahweh had abandoned Saul. As we come to the end of the pages of Samuel, we see that David is victorious over the Amalekites and we see that Saul and his sons are killed by the Philistines. He brings low and he exalts. But don't miss the big picture of this final section. This final section details God's divine sovereignty and meticulous providence in the preserving and sustaining of the life of his anointed David. And it's in this final section that we read of the righteous suffering under the hand of persecution of the wicked. And it's at this point in David's life that he pens so many of the Psalms in which that theme is so prevalent. Consider Psalm 18. I would encourage you read Psalm 18, 50 verses in your devotional time throughout this week. But David writes at the end of Psalm 18, he, that is God gives great deliverance to his king, and he shows steadfast love to his anointed. This is the confession of a faithful king. These are the affirmations of a man who is after God's own heart. But friends, we must not come to the wrong conclusion because as Schreiner comments, while David's obedience and righteousness was great, it was not perfect, which demonstrates the need for a completely righteous king. We analyze three prominent characters tonight in the pages of 1 Samuel. Three important men in the biblical storyline. But there's a song that I like to play on the way home to keep our daughter up, Oakley. It's a Shilin song for children. It's called Only Jesus. As you read the Bible, it's important that you see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus, goes the chorus. And in chapter two, verse 10, Hannah prays that Yahweh will give strength to his king. And he will exalt the horn of his anointed. And that word anointed in the Hebrew is Mashiach, which is transliterated in the English as Messiah. You see, all of the offices of the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king could be referred to as Messiahs for they were anointed for their specific office and function. But friends, there is one. There is one who can take the definite article with the Messiah. And we meet that one in John chapter one, verse 41. When Andrew comes to Peter, his brother, and he says, we have found the Messiah. The ultimate prophet, priest, and king. God's anointed whom we meet in Psalm two. The one in whom he says that David warns, take your refuge in him. Kiss the son, God's anointed, lest he become angry. And yet he said, blessed is everyone who takes refuge in him. And it's this anointed one, God's anointed, that the book of 1 Samuel and the rest of the Old Testament looks. And it's to this one that you must look this evening for salvation. Even as the apostles said in Acts chapter 4, there is no name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Or as even Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Kiss the Son, the ultimate Davidic King, God's anointed. Find your refuge in him this evening. Oh, friends, do it. For his wrath may soon be kindled. But how blessed is everyone who takes their refuge in him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're grateful for the truth that we discovered tonight. We're grateful for the book of 1 Samuel Lord, I pray that you would impress these truths upon our heart for your glory, for our edification. Would you be exalted? Would you edify us with divine truth? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.